What If the Len Bias Story, hosted by Jordan Ritter Khan, is The Ringer's latest narrative podcast. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on the Book of Basketball 2.0 feed. Here's a quick trailer. You've heard his name, Len Bias, 1980s phenom, second pick in the NBA draft. And then, cocaine, tragedy, one of the most shocking deaths in sports history. 35 years later, Bias's legacy is still making an impact. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, this is What If, the Lynn Bias story. I'm Jordan Ritter Khan. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hello and welcome to the Ringer MLB show. My name is Michael Bauman and I'm a staff writer at the Ringer. Joining me today, as always, are Ringer staff writer Zach Cram. Say hello, Zach. Hello. And Ringer staff writer Ben Lindbergh. Hello. Boys, there was a basketball game last night. <laughs> in which <laughs> It's the, news to me. Yeah, so Ben, the Sixers are a basketball team in Philadelphia. Okay. Uh, they've been in the news a lot recently. They... Uh, they stole the Astros idea, ex- except it ha- it hasn't uh, extended from tanking to cheating and also winning a championship. <laughs> Last night, they were up 21 points with 15 minutes to go and lost. The answer is uh, Mike is, I think, even underestimating how bad it was because it was 26 points. It was 26 points. It wasn't 26 points that late in the game, was it? It was it was 25 points with 15 minutes. To oh, go. God. Oh, that's right. It was. So (laughs) sounds like a lot of points. It's a little hazy. Yeah. Even in basketball, that's a lot of points. I spent 35 minutes after the the final whistle sitting in my home office where I watched the game with the computer and TV off, just staring into the corner uh, until I wasn't so angry. I couldn't stand anymore. Um, So I want to ask you guys, what is your most crushing loss in specifically in baseball? Uh, So Actually, Ben, I'm really interested to to hear about this aspect of your baseball life because you tend to go light on both emotion and fandom. And I'm curious if you've got anything for this. Yeah, there's only really one that comes to mind, but it comes to mind immediately. It's tough. I don't have a, a whole lot of youth, at least sports related losses. It's because you were born me. at 31 years old. <laughs> at heart, yes. But for a few reasons, really, because A, I've only seriously ever followed or cared about one sport, right? So that just limits the number of losses that were available to me. In my own participation in team sports, I didn't particularly care whether we won. (laughs) Just a a great team spirit guy. And also, I was a Yankees fan growing up watching the Yankees in the mid to late 90s and early 2000s. So, you know, not a lot of crushing losses to choose from. So there's only one. And you can 
guess what it is now, probably, which is 2001 World Series Game 7. And I expect zero sympathy here, obviously, (laughs) but it was crushing for me at the time just to experience a little bit of what other fan bases experienced routinely. I mean, having come off back-to-back-to-back World Series, having an incredible series. I mean, that series, just as devastating as it was at the time, remains one of the best series I've ever seen. I was following it incredibly closely. I was at Game 4, the Tino Martinez, Derek Jeter, Mr. November game. And when you're the Yankees and you always win and you have Mariano Rivera on the mound, you expect to win again. And the fact that that did not happen for once and my universe was turned upside down because my sports team did not win a World Series one year, that was totally crushing and I cried in a bathtub. I'm glad you picked that because it's even less sympathetic than my pick for most crushing. (laughs) You'd think that being a Phillies fan, it would be a Phillies game, but no. In 2012, South Carolina was coming off two national championships. Uh, They had gone two years without even losing a game uh, in Omaha. They got to the College World Series final for a third straight year against Arizona. They lost game one out of the best of three. I'm still mad at Rob Snyder. And then game two, they trotted out Mike Roth and and Matt Price. They're two clutch pitchers who had dragged them to uh, consecutive national championships and just not to put too fine a point on it, a dog shit Arizona team just smoked them. And I was furious. And I was watching this, this game, like most of those games, these three national or national uh, final years were my first three years after graduating college. So I had been going to bars in Southern New Jersey, asking that, first of all, telling bartenders that college baseball was a thing that they put on TV and then standing in the corner and yelling and screaming while everybody else was, had no idea what was going on. Uh, that should like that, that season as a whole was a cap on one of the greatest runs in, in recent college sports history, but it was a real emotional low point for me. And yet not as, it's much of a spoiled child moment as that was not as much as, as Ben with the Luis Gonzalez (laughs) game. You can't top mine. No. Did you cry in a bathtub, Mike? I was instructed to stop shouting at one point by my friend, my friends who were with me, who told me to stop making a scene because nobody else knew what was going on. Zach, how about you? So I'm glad that Ben mentioned the team sports aspect before, because the first thought that came to mind here for me was I was six years old, ready to play in my machine pitch rec league championship game. I woke up early. I had specially selected Wheaties to eat for breakfast that morning because Wheaties is the breakfast of champions. And then the game was rained out, and because the school year was ending, they decided not to reschedule it, lest they run into families' vacations, and the other team was awarded the championship because they had a better regular season record. And I am still haunted to this day about not even having the chance to compete for the six-year-old title. You should be. That's You guys got screwed. I also cried. I can't remember if it was in a bathtub, but to this day, I can't eat Wheaties without thinking of this squandered (laughs) opportunity. The breakfast of losers. (laughs) Breakfast of of no contest. Bobby, you've got to have something, right? For a a terrible loss that I suffered personally or as a Mets fan? Well, 
Yeah, as, or as a baseball fan or participant, if you want to take us back to your illustrious amateur careers. I never lost when I was participating, undefeated. Uh, no, I mean, the obvious ones are the 2006 NLCS Game 7, which I don't need to whine about because plenty of people have wasted a lot of podcast airtime whining about that specific game and Carlos Beltran at bat. Uh, the 2015 blown 7-1 game uh, on July 31st and the rain, two rain delays, Justin Upton, three-run home run. That was a really tough one. I'll just go to, back to a personal one. Uh, May 29th, 2019, here in Los Angeles, I went to a Dodgers game after work by myself. Uh, it was still pretty cold in Los Angeles. I sat there through the entire game. Mets offense was looking great. They brought in Edwin Diaz in the bottom of the ninth with a three-run lead, and he proceeded to give up four runs without getting a single out and blow the game. So I sat there for a full four-hour Dodgers game in the cold by myself. And that was that was pretty crushing because that was like the beginning of the oh my god Edwin Diaz might fucking suck and we just gave <laughs> up Jared Kelnick for him uh, and as you know Mike we had a lot of disagreements at the time about the the validity of that trade for the Mets side so that was pretty crushing um, but th- I mean not more crushing than 2006 obviously but that's just that was just too obvious of an answer I'm glad that Bobby brought up those regular season games though because Mike bringing up this question made me realize that baseball has caused more regular season heartbreak for me than any other sport. And I follow a lot of other sports pretty closely. And you would think baseball, there are 162 regular season games, which means each individual game is the least important. But I have far more memories of individual regular season heartbreak than any other sport. I think there's something about like the the cliched lack of a clock, but you just think you're going to win. You put in a closer and you know that 95% of the time your team is going to win the game and you can be leading for three hours and just lose it at the drop of a hat. Or I think there are some memories of like 18 inning games that stretch on and on without the runner on second rule and losing those games are just absolutely brutal. So maybe we don't get as many of those anymore but i think that is a fairly unique phenomenon for baseball that regular season losses can hurt just as much years later it's real torture chamber shit like you can feel the anxiety coming on in a way that you can't feel it for other sports because at least the feeling of watching the clock go down when your team has a big lead is like a little bit of like a mini dose of xanax for you as a fan but then in baseball when you're just watching edwin diaz give up 110 mile an hour doubles to the right and left field corner at any opportunity. It just really hurts a lot. So your point, Cram. Yeah, that probably informs my why I didn't pick a, a Phillies game because they've had a couple bad losses, but everything, all of their playoff experience has either been when I was six years old or was so it was so close to a recent World Series that I didn't feel like I had the right to complain. Um, it can still be painful. <laughs> 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 yeah. So let's go on to another crushing loss, the crushing loss of sticky stuff, which Major League Baseball uh, has promulgated a series of directives, rule clarifications, uh, new procedures to make sure that pitchers aren't loading up their their hands with goo anymore. Uh, thus ends the age of spider tack and it's it's competitors, it's cognates, whatever you want to call it. Uh, ben and I have both written about this for this week. It's been in the news, and uh, pitchers seem to be pretty upset about it. Uh, so, uh, Ben, what do you make of this this set of directives, and and how do you think we're going to end up going from here? 
Well, it's clearly been building really for months and years at this point. The drumbeat has been getting louder and louder, but still, I'm almost shocked that we've reached this point. Like if you had told me before the 2020 memo, like early 2020, that by mid-2021, every foreign substance would be panned and umps would be inspecting pitchers and other players many times throughout every game. I don't know that I would have believed it as much as it it needed to happen, at least to some degree, and was overdue in happening. This is a major change. I mean, we've all grown up with baseball where it was just wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We knew everyone was using stuff. Now, what they are using and the advantage that they are deriving has increased seemingly in recent years. But this has been such a part of the fabric of the sport for so long and so little has been done about it that it's been, what, six years since the last pitcher was suspended and it's rare even to see pitchers inspected. And yet here we are going completely cold turkey as of next week. And I am absolutely fascinated to see what the effects will be. We're already seeing some of the effects, but there's such huge questions really about whether pitchers will revolt, whether they can adapt. We're already seeing spin rates drop pretty precipitously. What will that mean for movement, for whiff rates, for offense? There's so many implications of this, and there's still questions about whether the enforcement will work and whether MLB will be forced to back off and whether this is actually the long-term solution as opposed to a tacky ball or sunscreen and rosin being legalized or some sort of universal approved substance. But this is deservedly a huge story because it's pretty shocking that it's happening at all and that it's happening at midseason. Yeah, and I think... Well, I guess I don't know what I expected, but I think I expected there to be more of a gradation between what was allowed and what was not. But MLB is basically saying that all substances, whether extreme like spider tack or much more commonplace and accepted like the sunscreen and rosin mixture are verboten. And I think that's where we've seen pitchers speak up about the lack of what they were used in what, what had been more accepted, what I think we've seen hitters say they're more comfortable with. And I think that's where we've seen a lot of the inks this week that MLB isn't kind of allowing the gray areas it did before. And maybe that makes sense because it's hard to distinguish between what is most useful and what is most efficient and what isn't. But on the other hand, I think this will also be difficult to enforce because if a pitcher is wearing sunscreen, what's to prevent him from, you know, touching the rosin bag on the mound and then touching his arm a little bit and then creating a little mixture for himself? So I think no matter what MLB was going to decide here, there was going to be some sort of gray area. But I'm kind of fascinated that they went this far in that direction. I think I am kind of surprised that they went so far as to uh, you know, I'm I'm sympathetic to the idea that maybe an umpire can't tell the difference between crazy glue and and uh, something more acceptable on the mound, and you want to make their job as easy as possible. I do like that that umpires, particularly with the sunscreen issue, uh, have been given a little bit of leeway. That the the directive says intentionally pitchers intentionally mixing, so the umpire can. I I frankly think we need a little bit more room for. For judgment calls, because a lot of the frustrating calls you see across all sports are, are these bright white line uh, issues where you can't really use the the umpires or the referees and other sports can't really use common sense to to uh, or can't really apply common sense in making a decision. At the same time, though, 
if there's one thing that's been shown over the past few years, it's that we can't trust pitchers or teams for that matter with a gray area. It's they they had leeway for decades and they abused it. And so you don't get to play with those toys anymore. I I think that's an entire, you know, I'm usually an extremely harsh critic of, of most things that MLB does in terms of trying to shape the game or not shape the game or try to pass off blame on the players. And I think there's some of that here, but I think there's a lot to like in this directive because the the players and the teams have really abused the the gray area that everybody was okay living in and just with every other kind of cheating whether it's uh uh videos or video sign stealing or anything like that the pigs get fat and the hogs get slaughtered and if you're not if you're not even going to try to play by the rules then the authorities ought to come down hard on you Saying you're not allowed to play with these toys anymore, reminding me of my crushing losses. This is really taking me back to six years old in this episode. Yeah, I'm kind of with you, Mike. I'm conflicted about some aspects of it, but I think that we've seen that if you leave the door open a crack, someone is going to exploit things. Like we've gotten to this point because, yeah, everyone was maybe kind of okay with sunscreen and rosin or pine tar or some of the substances that don't enhance spin as much, although they still do to a significant degree. It was really when people started pushing the envelope and going with spider tack and all of these more exotic substances that I think it became a more glaring problem. But if you said, okay, sunscreen and rosin is allowed or some other mixture How long would it be before you have teams coming up with mixtures that look like that, at least to an umpire when he's doing a cursory (laughs) visual inspection? I mean, coming out with with Elmer's SPF 50. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Right. I mean, it it may already be difficult to distinguish just in this context between all of the various substances and to do that quickly so that you're not slowing the game down too much. And so I think there is some value to just saying, no, nothing. We mean it. All foreign substances are banned, like it says in the rule. And, you know, you do have rosin and you have the balls rubbed up with mud. And it seems like it should not be physically impossible to throw a baseball under those conditions. And so I'm kind of left questioning how much of the outcry that we've heard from pitchers and pitchers saying I can't grip the ball or Garrett Richards saying that he can't throw a breaking ball because he can't get a grip on it. How much of that is legitimate and we should take it seriously and we don't want a version of baseball where pitchers physically cannot throw baseballs or throw them in in unpredictable directions? And how much of it is just the adjustment period where pitchers are having to resign themselves to not being able to pitch as well, right? I mean, that's the point of this, essentially, is that you don't get as good a grip, you don't get as much spin, you don't get as much movement. So are pitchers saying, I can't throw anymore because they can't throw the way that they were accustomed to when they were cheating and getting an advantage that is banned by the rules? Or is it something more than that? So I think there are realistic concerns about health and about pitchers adjusting and and going from nothing to almost nothing and how that could affect fatigue and grip and how that translates to arm injuries. Like that's not totally fictitious, although I think we have to be careful about overreacting to every injury because guys get hurt all the time as it was. Oh, geez. You think the baseball, (laughs) the baseball fans and media are going to overreact to injuries when every time a pitcher trips over his own feet, they're like, oh, we need the DH. It's unsafe. Yeah, that's definitely going to happen. 
So yeah, I mean, Tyra Glass now, right? Like he was in a, a very high risk category as a pitcher yeah. who has had wrist and forearm issues before, who throws a hundred as he acknowledged. Like it would not have been surprising to see Tyra Glass now get hurt. Now he made a pretty persuasive and compelling case if you listen to him. And I think there's some scientific basis to the fact that if you go from something to less of something immediately without compensating in some way, that you might subject yourself to greater risk, but you might just have to compensate by taking something off for a while. And that's something that, to be fair, pitchers have been trained not to do. So it's maybe a lot to ask them overnight to go from max effort all the time to not max effort. But in the long run, maybe baseball is better off if they have to do that as long as we don't have just a pile of injured pitchers in the short term, which would be bad. Yeah, I think the analogy that has come to mind most is the transition from starters to relievers because Ben, as you rightly note, pitchers over time have just been trained to throw more and more with max effort. And that's what we see when pitchers transition from starting to relieving. They can tick their velocity up without having to worry about going six, seven innings. And we don't often see pitchers go from relieving to starting. That's the reverse that of the the stream that usually happens. And that's kind of what we're going to see here with pitchers having to consciously get less spin, get ha- have less good stuff than they're used to. And that's uncomfortable. And I, I think the timing is probably the strangest part of all of this. If they had an offseason to experiment with throwing with less stuff on their hands, I think I would be less sympathetic to what they're talking about right now. But having to change after throwing 70, 80 innings already in the season, as Glass now pointed out in his rant, is kind of weird to make them change midstream. And I'm sympathetic to that argument, but it's like, was this going to continue all season before MLB said we're going to address it in the 2022 offseason? That doesn't seem tenable either. So I think the fact that they were just slow to act on it in the first place, they were setting themselves up to be in a position to fail. Yeah, I think the time to do something about this, because I think I think Glasnow's right. I think Garrett Cole said something similar that uh, it's not ideal that MLB is just dropping this unilaterally in the middle of the year. The, the, but frankly, the time to do this was last offseason. I I don't know. I don't know if it matters that much if they had just let this this offseason or this sorry, if the, the rest of the season had played out uh, with everybody using, you know, chunky peanut butter on their their hands to try to get a better grip on the ball where glass now and i think glass now is 100 right that any minute change could lead to other downstream effects that could result in injuries i don't know that that's what happened with him uh but where he loses me is this is the kind and i said this in my column that this is the kind of rhetoric that you see from people who know they're getting away with something unethical and don't want to have to stop because you know, if we stop allow or we stop allowing pitchers to use grip aids, then we're going to have injuries through hit by pitches. We're going to have uh, all sorts of of knock on ligament injuries or shoulder injuries to to pitchers who are having to le- relearn how to throw the ball. And to a certain extent, the answer to that is tough shit. You guys had your chance to to play close to the rules, and you didn't. And you're going to have to adjust now. Like baseball is a game of adjustments, and and uh, they're going to have to learn how to take a little bit off or, or or find another way to get a better grip on the wall. And by the way, it's not, and I'm guilty of this a little bit, saying MLB is banning all grip aids. They've still got rosin. You know, 
baseball players are stickier than a dive bar bathroom floor. They've got so much crap on themselves to get a better grip on the ball or the bat. They're going to find something else to to help them. Like, I, I just can't imagine, like, eating with the same hands. You grip a bat that's slathered with pine tar. It's just disgusting. So they live like this. They're going to find something sticky to put on the baseball. Everybody's going to be fine, but they're just going to have to make an adjustment. And I think the the game is going to be better off. I think uh, just having a more transparent, fair, leveler playing field is going to be uh, better for everybody in the long run. And we're going to have to deal with a little bit of, you know, some justified complaints, some exaggerations to to try to uh, allied what's actually going on with what you know what they want to be going on in terms of in terms of pitchers right i think some fans will have zero sympathy because they'll just be in the camp of you guys were cheating so tough some fans always have zero (laughs) right and i think that's a bit much if we understand the context and the conditions and the way that these guys were encouraged to do what they were doing but they can't say they weren't warned right i mean there was the memo from the league last year there was the memo from the league this year the past few months have really been, you know, clear clear that this was coming. There was reporting trickling out. People knew baseballs were being tested, et cetera. And I don't really expect anyone to have stopped using stuff until they absolutely had to, both because until it actually happened, it was kind of hard to believe that there were real teeth to this, but also because, what, is one guy going to say, well, okay, I guess this is coming, so I'll stop using this while it can still give me an advantage? And, you know, if some Someone had had knocked it off on opening day this year and no one else did, then that player, that team is going to be at a disadvantage. So really, until this went into effect, I don't think anyone was seriously going to stop just voluntarily before they had a, a real pressing incentive to. So, yeah, you know, if it were the beginning of spring training and they said, hey, this is coming and you can mess around in games that don't matter and bullpen sessions and so on, maybe that would have been a bit better. But Clearly, this was coming. And, you know, even right now, right, there's this little grace period where they announced that this was happening the following week. It wasn't like the same day. So you have some time to experiment and figure out what works. And, yeah, you might have to do that in actual games that count, which is not ideal. But (laughs) some of these teams are going to play the Orioles from now until the end of the season. So they do have time to experiment in games that don't matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, they can't say they weren't warned. So I understand why they're upset. You take these tools away that were helping them, then inevitably they're going to be upset. So it really just comes down to, are they upset for legitimate reasons that we should do something about and change the policy? Or is it that inevitably, whatever we did, if we seriously cracked down on this, they were going to be upset. And you know what? That's okay. That's better for baseball. It's better if these guys' tools or toys, as you said, get taken away because it better be, it it might be a better brand of baseball. And I'm really curious to see how much of a difference it makes, because I think that's the the big advantage maybe of doing it at midseason at this awkward time is that we get kind of a clean before and after sample, like split almost halfway through a season. Oh God, that's going to be insufferable. <laughs> and we have to adjust for the context and the weather and everything. I've seen people saying, oh, scoring is way up when spin rates have been down. And that's true. But if you compare April, May scoring to June scoring, it's always different. So we have to keep that in mind. But having that sort of natural experiment where we can really assess those effects, especially heading into the CBA talks and all the other talks about experimental rules and moving the mound back and all of those things, like 
knowing whether this works or not would be quite valuable because maybe we'll know that we don't have to do these other drastic things because enforcing a rule that's already on the books gets us at least part of the way there. So we'll see soon. I'm going to toss out a question which isn't on the outline. How many pitchers do you think get suspended that between, uh, I guess, the 21st and the end of the season? That's a good question. Specifically for this violation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, man, I'll, I'll say four. I, I was I just, thinking. I don't think it's going to be a lot. Yeah, definitely less than 10. I'll say like maybe six or seven. It's not going to be that many because now that they know that they're looking for it, they're going to be. So actually, so here's the other theory is that enforcement might not be as strict as as uh, the league is trying to to make us believe i think that there's gonna whenever there's a big rule change in sports like the umpires or referees always are sort of a little slow to to adjust i think the only thing that's counterbalancing that is certain umpires really like to get on tv uh so we might see i don't know uh uh a certain umpire whose name sounds kind of like a big pet shop boy song uh going out there and doing checks outside the the confines of commercial breaks and and causing a big scene. So we might see a couple of those. That's why I might go higher than than four. But I think four is a good guess. I think I'll, I'll put the the over under at six and a half personally. I'd say two. Wow. So we we can see yeah. who huh. hits the mark. I, I don't know unless Bobby wants to toss out 12 or something. I think we got a, a pretty good range covered with our three guesses. I will not be making any predictions at all. <laughs> I'm exercising my Ben Lindbergh rights. <laughs> I applaud you. But that is one of the big unknowns is, is like, how thorough will these inspections be and how good will pitchers be at hiding this stuff? I think it's good that MLB kind of closed or at least narrowed some of the loopholes where you might have said, well, maybe the catcher position players will put the stuff on the ball and the pitchers will get away with it. But really, any player can be inspected and it doesn't matter who put it on the ball. If it's on the ball, guys are going to get ejected. So I, I think that's probably good. But I don't know how many pitchers will be confident that they can stick that stuff in a place where the sun don't shine and get away with it anyway and are willing to test it because really if there's certainty like if you know and I think if they're ficking, I think if they're sticking their fingers up their butts <laughs> on the mound then then we're going to be able to see that yeah like, but that's baseball tradition right adjusting your junk on the mound that's uh that's kind of you know that goes back as far as the use of sticky stuff at all so Will they actually call pitchers on that? I don't know. Like, is there a place you can hide it? Can you make the stuff invisible? We'll see how clever. I do not consent to a search (laughs) office. I hope that happens because that is also in the rules that if someone just refuses a search, they just get automatically ejected and suspended, which would be. Oh, I thought you were talking about a cavity search. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) we're talking about, I mean, you want ratings, man. I have completely lost the plot here. Can Can I ask you guys just a one confirmation question? Has MLB confirmed that they will not suspend anybody who had the ball taken out of play before all of this? Because that was sort of their like enforcement plan this year, right? Where they were taking balls out of play. It was a whole thing with Trevor Bauer. They were examining them and sending to the lab. Have they confirmed that none of those players are going to be punished for that behavior? It's really just the twenty first so. on from now on? Yeah, that... That was like the survey testing sort of at the start of the PD testing era where it's yeah, like the <laughs> reason that we that everybody gets to pretend that David Ortiz wasn't on steroids. <laughs> <laughs> but 
I think <laughs> it's uh, it's like, you know, it was fact-finding. It was like, let's figure out how prevalent the problem is. And then MLB's press release, which maybe this will segue into a next thing that we wanted to mention, was that they were shocked to find out how prevalent the sticky stuff usage was and how much it helped, which is hard to believe. But, you know. I'm loving this. Yeah, the because this is one thing that as unsympathetic as I tend to be towards the pitchers, I think it, it bears repeating over and over that a lot of them are doing this at the behest of, of organizations. And we got this great subtweeting war between Zach Gallen, uh, Michael Hill, and Scott Boris. Scott Boris, I mean, you want to talk about guys who are not taking anything off their fastball. Scott Boris went on a, a metaphor rampage yesterday talking about the difference between the grip freeway and the performance enhancing Autobahn. And then when Hill did not. So this is the thing Zach Allen said that Michael Hill, who's now Major League Baseball's uh, vice president for for on-field operations, formerly the Marlins GM when Gallon was a Marlins minor leaguer, uh, was uh, definitely knew what was going on in terms of ball doctoring. Uh, uh, Boris said Gallon's a Boris client and Hill in his response said, oh, Zach Gallon's a a client of a or a represented by a certain agent who likes to stir the pot. And Boris said, you know, if he expects us to believe that, then maybe he expects us to believe that the tooth fairy was the farm director in Miami. And I'm all about this because we're getting a bunch of pitchers. You know, Glasnow had like, I think he gave the take that everybody's like, this is important. We should listen to it. This is all gravely serious. And then we're getting, you know, Gallon and Carlos Rodon sort of coming out and getting loose on the, on the main account. And, uh, I'm really enjoying that. So I hope that even if we don't see a lot of suspensions, we do see a lot of back talk from, from pitchers who are being put out by this. Yeah. I believe gallon. I don't know anything about that specific, that specific situation, but I think it was prevalent enough and, and common enough for teams to be encouraging pitchers to use these things either explicitly or indirectly that it's not at all hard to believe. It is hard to believe that MLB and that Mike Hill and and others in the league office were ignorant that this was going on, given just how public it was in the past few years. And so I think it is kind of, you know, disingenuous, hard to believe, hypocritical that they made it sound like, oh, we did this fact finding and wow, we were shocked to discover that this was going on. And that's why we have to step in immediately. That said... I think it's one of the advantages of MLB hiring guys like Hill and like Theo Epstein is that they know where teams are burying those bodies, right? And if the league is trying to root out cheating or improve the game, I think one good way to do that. Or to cover it up. Yeah, I mean, I think one good way to do that, though, is to hire people who have exploited those rules, right? Who've been part of the problem, essentially, to say, hey, you helped break baseball, now help us fix it. I've used the like white hat hacker comp before. So I'm kind of happy that MLB has people like that on their sides, even if their own records aren't clean. Well, they better not have a white hat because then it'll be pretty easy to see what smudges you're <laughs> placing on there to help you doctor the ball. Good point. All right, Zach, I'm just going to read you this topic heading on our rundown. What are the Giants doing and why haven't they gone away yet? Because they're the chaos Giants, Mike. They have continued over from 2020. They are in first place ahead of the expected NL West race between the Dodgers and Padres. The Giants are old. The Giants are great. The Giants are winning ball games. The Giants are probably not going to win the division and we can talk about that. But I think 
both Bay Area teams have been really fascinating this entire season, but especially recently because it's almost halfway through the season now. And as you say, they have not gone away yet. Yeah, it's kind of incredible. These two teams have almost identical records at this point, almost the same Fangraphs playoff odds, although in Oakland's case, they have much better chances of winning their division. I think they're both surprising, but sort of in different ways. Like if you had asked me before the season started, I would have been much more surprised by the Giants being in this position. And yet, if you asked me right now, based on their performance thus far this season, I'm more surprised by the A's having the record that they do because the Giants have actually played better than the A's. And so with the Giants, it's like I can explain how they have gotten to this point looking at their stats and their underlying performance. I can't necessarily explain why they have performed so well, but given that they have, I get why they're in first place. With the A's, it's somewhat murkier, I think. Like the Giants' run differential is more than twice as high as the A's. And I think the A's have exceeded their base runs record by five games, the Giants only by one. So like the Giants have earned this and and you can point to things that they've done. Like they have the National League's highest defensive efficiency. They've been maybe the best fielding team in that league, which was sort of the A's secret to success a few years ago, but is not now. (laughs) So the Giants are this great defensive team. They've hit really well. Actually, both teams have hit really well and and pitched roughly equivalently. Like they're next to each other on the list of Team WRC Plus or or Park Adjusted FIP. And yet with the Giants, it's all like 35-year-old guys who are doing it, which just boggles my mind. It's I, like I love it. Yeah, those old geriatric millennials, right, Ben? Yes. Finally contributing something. Exactly. I one of my favorite stories this year is the GD Buster Posey Revenge Tour. Yeah. Uh I mean, he was I was really worried that he was gonna fall into that Hall of Very Good camp because I think there was a legitimate argument for a couple years in the early 2010s that he was the best position player in the world uh, before Mike Trout really took, you know, took that mantle with both hands in sort of the interregnum between Pujols and Trout. And uh, he's he had had a couple years where he had suffered injuries. He sat out last season and he's back as good as ever. Like he's his uh, batting line is pretty close to his MVP campaign. And, you know, he hasn't. He's uh, spent a little bit of time on the shelf, but the Giants certainly seemed ready to to move past him. They spent two first-round picks, two very high first-round picks on college catchers, guys who would seem to herald Posey moving to an infield position or maybe leaving the team altogether. And uh, he's going out with a bang. It's it's almost like, here's, here's going to be a strange simile, like the the Adam Sandler Oscar campaign for uncut gems, where there was this guy, you know, everybody loved him. He was a huge movie star and then just sort of checked out for a while. And then he comes back and brings the fastball and uh, and just is delivering just an absolute monster performance this year. And I'm really, really enjoying it as much as I find large sections of the rest of this team uh, very perplexing. The Giants lead the National League right now in home runs, and that is not an easy thing to do when you play at their home ballpark when you don't really have any proven power hitters on this roster. Uh, Crawford is leading the way with 15 home runs, then Posey has 12, and nobody else is even in double digits. So it's not like they have one person completely leading the way. It's just a bunch of pretty good players performing pretty well. And I think the pitching staff is uh, a little 
different because Kevin Gaussman is actually pitching like a Scion candidate, but even the pitching staff has been pretty similar in that it's a bunch of pretty good players performing pretty well. Anthony Desclafani, Alex Wood, Johnny Cueto, all these guys are pitching about league average or better. And when you can stock an entire rotation with pitchers who are performing at that level, you're just able to be in every single game. You're kind of average or better across the board. It's strength and depth. And I think that's such a hard thing to build. And I don't know how you know how uh, surprised even the Giants might be by how well some of these guys are playing. But it's I would rather have the the lineup of nine good players than the lineup of a couple great players and then try to fill in the the rest of the gaps because we're seeing that that approach fail across the league right now. Yeah, you look at the lineups and the stats are sort of similar or the the hierarchies, at least. It's like you have one monster in each lineup, Posey and, and Matt Olson, and then you have a bunch of guys who've been good, you know, Longoria, Belt, Crawford, Yastrzemski in the Giants case. Marcana, Ramon Laureano, Tony Kemp, et cetera, on the A's roster. But it is really that they haven't had many people who have sucked, <laughs> which is sort of an underrated quality, I think. It's it's easier to focus on the superstars than it is to focus on the fact that, you know, the lows are not that low for the most part, which maybe makes it harder to upgrade as these teams look ahead to the deadline because there aren't that many dead spots where they've gotten zero and they can upgrade. So that's something to take into account. But it's been pretty impressive top to bottom and, you know, contributions from guys you wouldn't have expected to see. And yeah, I mean, Oracle Park has become a better hitters environment with some of the structural changes they've made to that park. And the Giants raked last season, too. And I know it was 2020. It was weird, but they've really kind of changed the way that they work as an offense. And it seems like they've sort of modernized and and joined the group of teams that have, you know, rebuilt their hitters to a, a more 2021 approach and incorporated, you know, changes to, to make pitchers better. Like you're starting to hear the sort of stories about Giants pitchers, for instance, that you used to hear about Astros pitchers or Dodgers pitchers or Rays pitchers where it's, Hey, they found the way to get the most out of those guys. But these are two teams that have like refused to rebuild really. And so that's another reason I think to celebrate the fact that they are both performing well is that they haven't done the teardown like everyone expected Farhan Zaidi, former A's executive to do the teardown in San Francisco. And he just has stubbornly refused to do that thus far. And it turns out hasn't had to at least yet. So that's another thing that in this environment, in this era really sets them apart. That point reminds me of, this isn't entirely relevant, but it's going to be on brand, so I'm going to tell the story anyway. I had When I was in grad school, I had a political theory professor who was very, very Marxist, but he coached, uh, coached youth baseball in his spare time. He said he liked doing it because the way you win in youth baseball is you don't strike out and you don't commit errors. And what that means is you have to coach up the worst players to be good rather than coaching up the good players to be great. And he found that to be a very egalitarian approach to sports. And I think that, you know, far be it for me to say that the San Francisco Giants are heroes of the proletariat, but I think we're seeing uh, both of these teams, you know, just having that depth, just having across the board, deep lineups, deep pitching staffs instead of, uh, um, you know, have, you know, it's not like they're not, it's or particularly the giants. It's not like they don't have big stars or big names or big salaries on, on the team, but you know, that's a, a, an approach 
in that that team build, building approach that works in baseball, if you can pull it off, if you could just have wall to wall good players and good pitchers, you know, it's more successful than it would be in other sports. And I think from the A's perspective, the guys I would have expected to start for them haven't really. Jesus Lazardo, I expected a really big step forward in this, his age 23 season. And he's been pretty bad. He has a 6.2 ERA. He is no longer in the starting rotation. AJ Puck hasn't really pitched. He's thrown three innings. And yet the pitching staff is still really good because of like podcast favorite Yusmero Petit, who may I just say Yusmero Petit is striking out five batters per nine this year. Yet he is seven and oh, with an ERA of 3.16. I love Yusmero Petit. I we love, love ourselves some Yusmero Petit. Yeah, I show. love how he's still managing to do this just year after year after year. And I think that speaks to this depth we're talking about. It's the difference between a strong link and a weak link sport. A weak link sport is one in which your weakest player kind of determines the outcome. And baseball isn't fully a weak link sport, but I think it's more on that side of the spectrum because unlike basketball, which is definitely a strong link sport where you can just give your best player the ball every, every time you can't do that. No, you can't. No, you can't Zach. We learned that last night (laughs) because eventually your best player will get tired. And if literally nobody else on the team makes a field goal in the second half, you're going to lose. Here we go. 76ers challenging basketball orthodoxy in a number of ways, apparently. But I think the giants and A's both speak to this, uh, kind of interesting, development this interesting philosophy about how to build the baseball team kind of like we've seen from the Dodgers frankly in terms of building the depth like we saw the Padres try to do this offseason in terms of building depth and I still going forward would not put the Giants in that class of teams if you look at fan graphs and baseball prospectuses projections they both have the Giants at sub 500 the rest of the way and like even as we're seeing the Giants do this even as we're seeing the A's do this until you reach like the all-star break historically projection systems have been more accurate in predicting rest of season record than actual current record. And it's really difficult to see how they continue to stave off the regression and point to them and think, okay, well they're going to regress at some point because you've been wrong so many times before, but I can't like completely discount the projections. Right. I don't know because at at the same time, like the angels were above 500 and I came into this episode all prepared to say, hey, look at the Angels. Could they make a run? And then they go in and get swept by the A's and as the A's put more distance between them and the third place team in the division. So I- I'm not really sure what to make of it. It is kind of befuddling. I don't think, I wouldn't say that either of these teams is even like 50% chance to win their division, but I think, you know, I'd give the Giants more than, is it, is it 8% chance of winning the, yeah, 8% chance of winning the division? And that's fan graphs and that's the most charitable of the two i'd probably take the over on that like this is the part of the season where i start to slowly um slowly phase out the priors and and look at more at what's going on recently one thing i I will push back on a little bit though is the idea that the a's aren't getting uh production from their stars you know i'm obviously it's going to be 2035 and I'm still going to be saying this is the year that Puck and Lazardo put it all together. But Sean Manai has been awesome this year. He's been healthy. That's the the big thing. And you know, I think going into the season, we would have identified him as, as Oakland's ace, if not him, then Chris Bassett, who I, you know, I think he's a special case. I'm not saying that, that he's a star, but a guy like, you know, Ramon Laureano has been one of the big names on that team. And Matt Olson in particular, 
if we're not looking at him as a, a star caliber player, I think that's kind of on us at this point. He hasn't been this good uh, at any point in in his career, but he's been a consistent power hitter, great defender at first base insofar as that matters for four or five years now. And, uh, you know, I think that he's been a, a huge part of this, this success. He's been Oakland's best hitter, best position player. Yeah, I meant more on the, on the pitching side. I should have okay. clarified, yeah. but uh, also on the pitching side, I do want to shout out James Caprellian because it is really Who's a huge prospect. Yeah, in so his time. he yeah. was a first rounder and he was a great prospect, part of the Sunny Gray trade that brought uh, Caprellian and a couple other prospects to Oakland. But he had like 18 major arm injuries. And I'm kind of surprised that we're seeing him in the majors at all, let alone pitching at this level. So I hope he keeps it up. It's really fun to see guys who you unfortunately discount just because they can't get healthy actually turn it around. And he's a 27-year-old rookie, but he's making it count. How much of our tendency to underrate the A's over the past few years has been their incredible collection of generic names? <laughs> it's just like <laughs> Sean Murphy, Matt Olson, Seth Brown. I'm still, I'm still like, Matt I still have Chapman. to look to see I mean, which one's Matt Olson and which one's Mark Cannon. Like, it's, <laughs> I know. I mean, you know, we we appreciate them, I think, but the average fan, I I sympathize with the struggle to keep these names straight. They're just all so generic. But I think neither of these teams like has the the depth of we were saying that they're sort of like the the Dodgers Padres style model and that they don't have a lot of weak points. But when a weak point does emerge, when someone gets hurt, they don't have the like great replacement to just step in. You know, they have to go get Mike Talkman from the Yankees or something. And, you know, he's helped with the the defensive aspect, but he hasn't hit any better than he did in New York. Like, I don't think that. The depth is there. I don't think that the high level prospect talent is there. You know, the way that the Dodgers can call up someone from AAA who'd be starting on most teams. The Giants can't really do that this year. They might be able to next year, the year after, but they're not quite there yet. So I just, I would be totally shocked if they somehow managed to hold off the, the challenges, challengers in their division, especially. The Dodgers. I mean, the Dodgers, I would be <laughs> flabbergasted if the Giants outlasted the Dodgers in this division. The Padres have been on a really rough stretch lately. Maybe the Giants could potentially hold them off, which would be a huge upset in itself. But I just, you know, they, it's possible though that you could get three NL West teams making the playoffs this year. We all expected it to be the Dodgers Padres show and the Giants have crashed the party and they have been the life of the party thus far unexpectedly. So could they hang on and win a wild card spot? Yeah, it's possible. And the A's again, like now that the Astros have Framber Valdez back and they've had the best offense in you baseball. Framber Valdez, man. He's great. What could I say? <laughs> He's back. He's pitching well. That's a big reinforcement. So, I mean, I just, I don't know. Like, we saw the A's win this division last year. Obviously, it, it can be done. I would be a lot less shocked by that than I would be by anyone upsetting the Dodgers. But a lot of the A's playoff chances right now, at least according to the playoff odds, are riding on those division odds, at least much more so than the Giants. I think, you know, Kevin Gaussman in a wild card game is nothing to sneeze at, given how well he's pitching. Spinning forward... One of you made the point earlier that because the teams exist more in kind of the depth mold than a top-heavy mold, it is harder to think of really obvious upgrade solutions at the deadline. I think one area for the athletics is the shortstop position. They traded for Elvis Andrews in yeah. the offseason, and he has not hit. He has a 62 
OPS plus right now. Everyone and else. They're probably a, not shocked that he's not hitting, by the way. It's, I, this was there's not a difference between thing. Yeah. 60 and 85. Chris Davis didn't do any better on the other side of that yeah. trade. So, yeah. But I, I think there are shortstops available. I mean, Trevor Story is going to be a free agent this offseason. I'd be shocked if the Rockies don't trade him. And he has been connected with the Yankees for, I think, obvious reasons for a long time. But the A's are not afraid to push for the right player when they think they have a chance. And if they stay up ahead of Houston for another month, I would be really interested to see someone like Story go to Oakland because he could just help fill that lineup spot so well. And that's the one obvious hole. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, I was thinking all the way back to like the Johnny Damon and Jermaine Dye and uh, um, uh, Kevin Apier trades from the early part from the early tw- uh, 2000s. But they've done this as recently as what, 2014 with the John Lester trade. And so, yeah, we'll see. I'll be completely honest. I have zero idea what this deadline's going to look like because we're still coming out of um, coming out of the pandemic and and that sort of economic and long term um, uncertainty is still hanging over us and so we'll see what the what the freight is for somebody like Story but yeah I mean talk about a, a roster that is a little bit short on big name star power that that would solve a lot of problems for them maybe they can trade for Marcus Simeon thoughts <sighs> maybe they could trade for uh, for Didi Gregorius because you know. This is not to bring this back to my own frustration, but you know we're talking about big big market teams with stars and scrubs approaches. Philadelphia used to have two teams, and and one Philly team is missing a key player because of gout, and the A's are out here just pulling top end players out of the ground like like tomatoes, and it's well, I guess that's a bad example because tomatoes don't come out of the ground; they come off a plant. Um, Anyway, today in horticulture, now, yeah, Michael Bauman. I'm start. I'm starting to, to to raise plants. It's been a it's been an educational experience all around. Um, all right, we're coming up on an hour, or so let's go to the unnamed weekend preview segment. Ben, do you have a a series that you're looking forward to this weekend? Yeah, you've got a few intriguing matchups this weekend. You have the A's against the Yankees, the underdog Yankees in this series. And James Caprellian, you just mentioned, Zach, will be starting on Friday. And, you know, I guess you've got St. Louis, Atlanta. That is something worth watching. And you have White Sox Astros, which will be a lot of fun. I think probably the two most talented teams going head to head. Yeah, I wanted to highlight the White Sox Astros series. I don't know if I would say these are the two best teams in the American League because I think the Rays have a pretty strong argument in that uh, in that competition. But White Sox Astros have the two best offenses in the league. And come Saturday, we have a matchup. I'm, I'm glad Ben brought up Framber Valdez a moment ago because on Saturday, we have Framber Valdez versus Lance Lynn in a battle for oh. the MLB show's hearts. <laughs> and given the quality of the offenses, you know, that could end up a, a 9-8 game, but given the quality of the, the pitchers here, <laughs> there we go. So I think we might need some friendly wager between uh, between Mike and Ben here. I'll take that action. Can we just hold, can we, I'll mute Mike's mic for a second, but can we just all acknowledge how right he was about this? Like, it's almost unfathomable how he didn't even think he was going to be this right. And it's absurd because he's been so confirmed and he's been so smug about it. I'll give him Lancelin. I don't think I've been as smug as I could have been. I I think I've been pretty gracious about just 
being writer about this than than really anybody on this call has ever been about anything. If we want to <laughs> not to put too fine a point on it. <laughs> yeah, Lance Lynn for Emberfeld as Saturday at uh, seven o'clock Eastern time. And I think that that's probably the best pitching matchup of the weekend. Like all jokes and bits aside. I'm not sure we can do that. we're nothing but jokes and bits on this the ringer mlb show (laughs) all right that'll do it for this week's edition of the ringer mlb show be sure to follow us on spotify uh where you can find us and the q exclusively every week on the ringer baseball feed uh thanks to zach and ben for joining me today thanks to bobby wagner and mike wargon for producing today's episode thanks to tyler glass now buster posey and matt olson for giving us stuff to talk about and thank you for listening